London is a city where different cultures meet and cross, and that is precisely why today's guest found London so fascinating, as it resonated with her upbringing. Daughter of a Ugandan Foreign Service diplomat, she was raised across the world, from Baghdad to India, Germany and Paris, all before the age of 18. She met her husband in Berlin and decided that London was the place she wanted to raise her family, as she considers herself an adventurer. She's a talented musician with a deep interest in technology and works for a leading London publishing house in the shadow of the Shard. Rose Sandy is author of the Color Crest techno thriller series with over 100,000 downloads. All this whilst raising two young children. She's one fascinating lady. I'm Steve Lazarus and this is your London legacy, telling the timeless stories of London's hidden personalities. So here I am in the news building in central London, opposite one of the most famous and iconic landmarks of recent times, the Shard. And I'm with an amazing guest who, as I was talking to her off mic, actually does far more than I ever anticipated she does with her life. And I just find it incredible that she finds the time to do what she does. She is, amongst other things, a musician, a publisher, a mum, interested in history and archaeology in IT, and she is also a very successful author. So I'm delighted to have on the podcast today, uh, Rose Sandy. So welcome Thank you. to uh, Your London Legacy. It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you for having me. And to spare your time, as you are so busy. <laughs> I just don't know where you find the time. So I'd like to kick off, if I may, just by you giving a little bit of a background about how you became involved in publishing and also what led you to end up in London? Because after all, the whole idea of what we do on this podcast is talk to people who are passionate about London. I know you've traveled the world. So just talk us through a little bit about your journey, because you've had a fascinating journey with your father and what have you. So just give us a little bit of a background about yourself. So I was born in Uganda, and my father is a retired diplomat, and that is working in the Foreign Service, so I grew up, as you said, around the world. So I lived in Baghdad, I lived in India, I lived in Germany, and I lived in Paris. That was all before the age of 18, and as many cultures, <laughs> and pretty much picked up the languages or had to, to survive, really, in some cases. And through that journey, I sort of understood that, you know, I picked up a lot of cultures and I picked up a lot of interest and London was one of them. And I did go to a British school when I was in Germany. I went to a British embassy school where I met actually the Prince of Wales then and Lady Diana. They were opening up our school or a building in Bonn at that time. London always fascinated me because I thought it was, a, it really mirrored sort of my lifestyle. It was, London is where many cultures meet and cross. And I always knew I wanted to live in a city like that because I felt like you could be in London and it doesn't matter what background you have, you f you'd fit in. And you, London is a creative city. So when I used to uh, work in mainland Europe, a lot of the talent we would hire for, especially around the creative, came from London, especially working in Sony and pic Sony Pictures and Sony Music or even just Sony Technology. So a lot of our creative agencies stemmed out of London. And so London attracts creatives. It attracts people with adventure. It attracts adventurers, I think, who want to try things. And I consider myself an adventurer, always have. So... Met my husband in Berlin and one day I said, you know what, I think 
I think I'd like to raise a family in London because I think it would be the perfect place for a family like ours that is absolutely international. So that's how I sort of came to London. And publishing is a little different. It's a little, uh, it's, the road is a little, is a little different. I was always someone who liked and was interested in uh, literature. And my husband will tell you this and many people who know me that I absolutely adore Shakespeare. And the perfect night out for us is to go watch a Shakespeare play. I don't know how much Jason really enjoys that, my husband, but... <laughs> Where's your preference? Would that be at the Globe? At the Globe. Or at the Globe, at yes. the Globe. But I did come here on several occasions and we'd go to the Barbican. I've been to Stratford-upon-Avon. I'd go to the Swan Theatre and that was my passion. Theatre, literature and all that. I really had, a, I've always had a passion for the creative that came out of London and especially uh, the UK. So where did you get into Shakespeare, having travelled outside of the UK initially? Was it widely taught in schools abroad? So I went to international schools all my life. With the strange accent you hear, that's because there were a lot of American schools I went to. And yes, Shakespeare was very much on the curriculum, but literature in general. And I got to act quite a bit and learn a lot of Shakespeare. And I always, because of my interest in language anyway, I always, as you know, we hear that Shakespeare is the father of the English language and all of that. So I got an interest anyway, not in the not only in the language, but just where this all hailed from. And so that's why I think there's a mirroring a little bit of the history of the language as well as, you know, the, the plays or some of that. So the journey to publishing was, I guess, to cut a long story short, always having had that interest in literature. I remember one day distinctly, you know, when my kids were very young and I said, do you know what, if I can crank out a book, even uh, no expectations, even just a draft within three months, I'll give myself three months. And it was the winter months. And if you can do that when it's not nice outside, I think I can do this. And I did that. I sat down and I said, I remember my professors saying, you know, you had a knack for or an interest. They actually asked me, why did you do business? and not study literature. And I always, they'd be laughing now because I always said, well, what will I do with a literature degree? <laughs> I can do a lot more with a business or an international economics degree and so forth. But it's really funny how that's all come together in exactly what I do today, the business side and, and the uh, creative side in publishing. So what I'm interested in learning about is, is, is genuinely, you've written, I think, Four or five in one series, the the decryptor, yes, um, which I have just finished, sort of cover to cover from start to finish in about a week, which is pretty good for me. And it's a four hundred and fifty odd page book, the the first one in the series, uh, which I really enjoyed, really couldn't put down. I want to know how you how do you find the time and the energy with everything else that you do? As I said at the beginning, you hold down a full time and an, an important job within a major publishing house in London, responsible for a division, yes, and two imprints. <laughs> You've got, you know, your husband, you've got two kids, so you've got a very active life. So seriously, how do you actually find the time? And when you find the time, how do you focus and plan the time to do the books that you do? Because if I can just say, the books are in the mold of a female James Bond, I think they've been called. James Bond coupled with The Matrix, I think was how they, they've been described. They're very complex stories that go from one part of London to the other part of the world in Uganda and Berlin and all over the place. Very complex stories and loads of characters. How do you do the planning and then find the time to, to do the research and get it all done? Well, with The Decryptor, what was really interesting is I wanted to write 
about a female, a strong character, because that is something that you don't see in a lot of thrillers. So there was a part of me that really wanted to sort of put a light on strong female characters that actually can fight good and evil and that sort of thing. So in terms of where do I find time to do all of it? Actually, there's never enough time in the day. But just so you know, I do write on the tube on my phone. I dictate, I have a dictaphone, and I use a special technology that transcribes my first drafts. On the train? Well, no, not on the train. (laughs) I guess to answer the question properly, I find pockets of time, but those pockets of time, I have to plan for those times. So like when I'll have a holiday, I will sit and plot. I will sit and do research. I will sit, I read a lot of the uh, BBC Focus and uh, magazines on science and technology because that's an interest of mine. I spend a lot of time in London museums. One of my favorite being the Museum of uh, of London, as well as the British Museum, where a lot of, you know, my character is a British museum curator. So I spend a lot of time there. But in terms of when do I actually sit down and do writing, I think with such a busy life, you have to plan for those pockets. Because, So if I have 20 minutes or an hour a day, I will know that when I sit down, this is what I'm going to write. And how do I get to that point? I, Of course, in the beginning, it was all a discovery. But what I do do is plot. And I studied a lot of film technique in, in uh, because I... I guess in this day and age, readers are very used to the visual. They're very used to plots that work in Hollywood or plots that work in TV. So when we're writing fiction, I think we have to have that millennial reader or that reader in mind who whose attention span is really very, sh- you know. Yeah, that of a goldfish. Ex- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, so if you're writing fiction today, you really have to have that sort of mindset that you're writing for someone, you're not competing with other authors, you're competing with Netflix, you're competing with what whatever is out there, texting or social media. Sure. And one of the things I found interesting was on, I think, your website, I saw that you had little video sort of, I don't know what you call them, introductions to the book. Very, very visual. Yes. So so like trailers. And so somebody asked me, why would you do a book trailer? Because I said, it is the same reader and the same audience you're competing for. And they're very visual. They are used to that sort of quality from Hollywood. And they're used, and we are, and, and the stories are not very dissimilar. Yes. Yeah, so I write on the train on my phone. I have a phone app. Okay, t- tell all, what is the phone app that you use? <laughs> I use I, I use two. So one is called Jotterpad, and on the iPhone, you can have Creative Writer. So you're actually handwriting on, on the screen? You can handwrite and you can dictate into your phone, but it's not the best dictating technology on the phone. And at home, I use Dragon Dictation. It's a software, and it's almost 98 to 99% accurate. You do have to train it. So what that means is I can sit down... I think like going back to the planning, if you know that I have one hour on a Saturday to write X chapter, when you sit down, you need to know that I'm going to write this scene. This is what happens in the beginning. This is the conflict. This is the what's happening at the end of the scene. And that goes back to all the planning. You have to be, to be able to do this successfully with the busy lifestyle, you have to plan. And then, so when I do get that 20 minutes to sit down and write, whether it's on the phone or on the computer, I can dictate. And you have to learn dictation is an art in itself. But before you even get to the dictation and the writing stage, there has to be, I'm guessing, a planning and research 
phase or research and planning and you have to i'm guessing you have to map out the the waves the, the peaks and troughs yes, yes. of the book the beats of the book Absolutely. if you like to understand Absolutely. where you're going what your conclusion is going to be yeah. not just from page one to page 450 but at each little yes. section of the book so do you have all that in your head i mean do, does that all come do you have a vague notion of where you're going to go at the beginning and then map it out as you go yes so i use it a very novelist you use this and also script writers use it so you know when you're writing fiction you have act one act two and act three you write out the beats you divide that in scenes you know your character so you should research all this material and you should jot it down it will be easier because the editing becomes easier because if you're there's this thing in um, writers or in publishing that we call pantsers pantsers are people who can just write like stephen king and they'll just start writing well stephen king famous i mean he, he wrote a book about how to write didn't he? Exactly. On, on writing exactly and he said he come what may even on christmas day he will get up in the morning at five six in the morning and he will lock himself away and he'll just start writing. doesn't matter what comes out, he will write. Exactly. But the editing is much harder if you do not have it all, meaning that you can do that, but there are some certain expectations in fiction you know, you need, you know, you need to have a setup and you need to have your conflict. And then you need to have certain things that happen within that middle part of the book, which is the hardest part to write, by the way. And then if you want to back it up, like you said, if I'm writing about history and archaeology and London, you need the research to also back that up. But the first thing is that skeleton plot. If I can just back you up a second, yeah. why is the middle part harder than the beginning and the end? Because the middle part, it's really interesting, but all writers find the middle the hard. Because there's this famous book by Blake Snyder, I might be murdering that name, but and it's called, you know, writing is about getting your cat up in the tree, you know, throwing rocks at the cat or and then getting it down. So if the getting up in the tree is the beginning of the book, throwing rocks at it, the conflict, and getting it down at the, you know. And the middle is very hard because most writers think, I know what happens in the beginning. I sort of know what I want the end to be, but now I've got to fill 450 pages. And how do I keep the reader's and attention? And how can I keep the reader's attention? And how can I keep pacing going? And all of that. So in my case, and not every writer is like this, in my case, it's really about plotting and knowing that there's only four questions you ever need to answer about a book you know what's the book about who's you know who's the main character or this is fiction I'm speaking for fiction here who's the main character what do they want who's trying to stop them and do they get what they want that's and you can actually divide that into those you know extend it further into four acts so your first part of the book is about who is the character setting up all of that and then the Second bit is, you know, what is it they want? Who's trying to stop them? So that's the middle bit that's hard. It's all about the conflict with the, and then how do I resolve all of this? Do they get, and do they grow character arcs and all of that? And that's what keeps readers reading. They have to care about the character. The other technique I think which you use particularly well in here is the short chapters, the short sections, which keep it really ticking along because you're constantly, I can't stand books which have, chapters and chapters because as you say we're so busy today and all we want to do is read a section a part an act or something and get to the end and then then you put it away and wake up the next day and think right I've got the next bit to look forward to with this book 450 pages it doesn't feel like it you can put the book down at any moment in time and always pick it up at another new bit which is always going to be exciting and, and fresh and carries on and there's there's breaks in time and there's breaks in in space as well or ge geographically as well 
So that, to me, was a very good technique to keep the book ticking along. So the middle didn't slow down, from my opinion at all. Yeah. It, 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 it was very, it was what they call a page And that turner. is a technique, interestingly, that you picked that up. That is a technique that I had to learn in the beginning, because like you, picking up books that, you know, have to grunge through the whole setup and building and then you you know I want to get to the meat of does the character actually make it to where they're supposed to briefly tell us about the the, the plot line in this book so this is the first in your series of the decryptor this is called the secret of the lost manuscript so w- when did you write this first of all oh my first that is 2011 I wow. want to say okay so for, yeah. your, for your first book yeah. with everything we said you going on in your life it, it's pretty astounding that you've accomplished this so just talk us through, as you say, the, the main plot line of the, the story of the book. So we have the decryptor and she, that's a nickname that's given to her. So the main character is a museum, British museum curator, who has is an orphan and she's always just wanted to know about, you know, what happened to her parents. And she somehow gets recruited in this secret organization, an undercover government organization that sort of have tie, has ties with five governments. And she has a knack and a skill for decrypting or cryptography or dealing with riddles and puzzles. And that is pretty much how she ends up in this world of the government work. And basically, there is a manuscript that shows up that no one can read. It is in in a very undecipherable language. And she is recruited on the task force team to be part of uh, this uh, decrypting of this manuscript. Nobody can read it. And then at the point, the critical point of the story is the manuscript gets is lost or is stolen and somehow ends up in her belongings with a very special note. And one of the things is she's looking for her for her parents. That's her only aim in at the beginning of the book. All she wants to do is find her parents. That's her main aim. She's quite a normal sort of character As to start with. a very normal yeah. character. And then it turns out that a, a letter attached to the manuscript that ends up in her belongings tells her to get it out of Berlin. It is connected to her parents and she has to basically decrypt it without it getting in the wrong hands. And so there's a whole story around where that manuscript came from, why it's connected to her, why do five governments want it? Plot line going on here. There's her looking for her her parents, and then there's the the secret espionage world of looking for it as well and uncovering what it's all about, the riddle. Exactly. What it relates to. And there is a historical part as well, because as a historian, part of her deciphering this has to do with her knack for history and her knack for just understanding languages and language code and all right so it's a it's a, a read for people who like techno thrillers and fast you know globe trotting so i'd never heard of this term techno thriller oh. until i came across your your book and not only that i i, I realized that you were actually number one bestseller in the techno thriller genre on, on amazon yes uh, which was uh, which pretty surprised, amazing <laughs> which surprised me as well <laughs> yeah techno thriller came out of the spy thriller so techno thriller is a big overarching term that where you can have spy thrillers military thrillers but it's all around the world of technology and development and how it has gone bad and how it might harm the world but then that's linked that technology came out of the clancy type books around military military technology so that's where the genre sort of stemmed out of but you know, you can stretch it further and some James Bonds are techno thrillers and that sort of material, yeah. So I've got to ask, how much of this is brought into the story from your life? Yeah. Well... And you don't have to be too personal here, but yeah. I mean, whatever you feel comfortable. Well, a lot of the places 
especially around London, are very dear to my heart that are in the book. And mo and every place mentioned actually does exist, except for one square in London that I sort of camouflaged a little bit. So some of the characters, one of the characters has diplomatic parents and a light and so that is very much mirrored from my background. A lot of the places that I mentioned they go to, one of being my favorite place in London, which is the British Library. British Library, which I'm embarrassed to say I've never been it to. It is the I'm most amazing. I can go there and I'm like, do not talk to me. I'm in my favorite, one of my favorite places in the world. The reason being, when I first walked in there and I got a special pass, and you can get a special pass to go to the reading rooms. How, how do you get the special pass? You ask for it. Okay. And then you have to be vetted. And then okay. I just rocked up and I said, I'm an author and can I have a special pass? And I showed them my book and they said, sure. That's, but that's my list of things to do. Special pass, British special Library, here I come. But it is where there is a copy of the Magna Carta. And so there is a, a, a museum aspect to it. So you can go and see the exhibitions. They tend to have a lot of exhibitions on, but they have a permanent exhibition and it shows you some of the most famous manuscripts uh, in literature. And that is where I live. Everything from music manuscripts to some of those, you know, like some of the Beatles manuscripts are in there. Some of Leon Leonardo da Vinci's work is in there. The, um, the Magna Carta has a special room. There's some religious works in there. There are the Brontes and some of these other, you know, well-known literature authors are in there. I could spend hours in that room. And part of it is because they're all storytellers and they're in this make-believe world that has kept, you know, there's the entertainment side of the make-believe world but there's also some of it the historical side of it as well so yeah I mean that's so that we you know the book travels around the world and that also mirrors every place when I wrote this book I made sure except for a place in Jordan that I'd been to every single place and that hopefully came out because everywhere from Berlin to the London venues that was that was really important to me at least on this book <laughs> so you already had it in your mind, a lot of the places, you, but there had to be a lot of research that went into this as well. Yeah. Did that take place sort of in, in, in the library, the museums, on the internet? I mean, or did you take yourself off and travel to these places to sort of... No, I had actually been like, I lived in Berlin for a long time. So that was the Berlin side. But one of the places that the main character in the book is a museum curator. And I didn't know very much about the sort of curator world, especially in London museums. So I had the honor and privilege to interview one of our curators at the Museum of London. And we set a time to talk about what that character, you know, if you are a curator, what goes into being a curator? How much education do you need? You know, what sort of work do you engage in? are you engaging with how much of, and I spent some time with their manuscripts because I wanted to know how manuscripts were handled, especially old ones and uh, if they were on display. And I was actually taken to the back of the museum in their archives and we spent some time in the library of the museum as well. This is not the British Library, this is the Museum of London Library, not accessible to the public. And we looked at some old manuscripts that came, where I think the one that was most memorable went back to the Fire of London and some of the diaries had been rescued. So it was all about, it was for me to understand how manuscripts are handled because my character has to handle these. She has to have a sensibility around manuscripts and, uh, and so forth. So that part of research in, in terms of the character was on site 
here in London. But things like you're, you're talking about famous buildings around the world, you know, and you're talking about doors opening here and doors opening there, yes. and what's down this corridor. And I was wondering, how, is it, are you just making this up? Not, <laughs> not, not, not just yeah. you, but authors, because you can't possibly, I mean, you have to have some sort of artistic license, I guess, when, you, when you're doing this. You do, but I think to be authentic, you know what, you want to draw where, um, you want some familiarity for the, the readers as well. So the shard appears uh, significantly in this book. And at that time, the shard... When I started writing the book, the shard was not open. And there were still these stories of people trying to get up the shard and take pictures and do all this monkey business around the shard. And that was what inspired me to have a very special scene in the book around the shard because I needed the characters to sort of sneak up this magnificent building opposite us right now. (laughs) And yeah, so you had to do... I mean, for me, there was a lot of researching everything that went into building the shard because I needed to know how many floors. And it wasn't open then. And I had to write with the mindset that it was going to be open by the time this book came out. So everything from what companies were going to be in there, there was going to be a hotel, there was going to be residential, there was going to be some offices, restaurants. So I needed to sort of gauge that from afar so there was a little bit of I guess artistic license but then also there was a lot of information on the opening of the shard so some of that but roads because I there's I think some scenes where I go through the roads of London that was really literally spending a lot of time with in the in the streets but also with google maps so knowing where the you know the the what is it the roman wall is and where the london bridge is and where it the south bank is because there's a you know there's a chase we start off with a chase chase. there's a few chases in the book yeah absolutely start to finish how long oh the first draft was i started in january and i finished the first draft draft in april with a young child at home and one in nursery so who, who was doing the um the editing the, the so that's, proofreading? that's just before that's the first draft right and that's to just get the story out so then i luckily knew friends at harper collins and a wonderful lady who worked in fiction at the time so at that time you weren't working in you weren't in publishing so what were you doing at the time i had just i was working i had just finished working for cisco systems and before that i was working for sony and the coca-cola company so i was sort of in this i sort of want a career change sort of don't want to not sure yet what i want to do i sort of want to work for myself i sort of don't know if i want to do that i've got my kids are small i have a little time before i go to my next career move and I can write a book if, well, at least I said, let me see if I can. <laughs> so that was just to get the thoughts on paper. And I made a pact with myself. If I can finish just the first draft, I know I'll be able to do it. So when it came to the lady who I knew, a wonderful friend at HarperCollins, I said, just read it. Just tell me if I've really gone nuts here or if it's, you know, it's, you know, it's just rubbish, then, you know, that's fine. <laughs> at least I've got them. And I had some very positive feedback. And then the next step was to think, if you're going to do this, you go the traditional route, you look for an agent, you start looking for all of that. And being an entrepreneur at heart, I sort of said, yeah, I'll try that. And the normal stories most authors go through, it was, you know, I I did pitch it to some agents and I did um, see, and there was interest, but it was just all taking too long for me. (laughs) And then I, yeah. And so I had some uh, friends and family edit the first draft. And then as the book went closer, and then at that time, independent publishing had really started. It was in its 
earlier days, not the earliest, but earlier days. And I said, well, you know what? I went to business school. I think I can maybe maybe figure this out. And if I don't, if it succeeds, it succeeds. If it doesn't, I haven't lost anything. And I think I remember saying, I'll give my the agent journey six months. And if within six months, I really don't you know, find what I'm looking for. I'm just going to go for it. I mean, what's self-publish? The, yeah, yeah. What's going? What's the hardest that? And that's the route you ultimately went with. Your, with that's your first the book. route I, f- I went through, and I along the path there was a lot of uh, you know a few editors I worked with. There were you know you were learning. I was learning the whole thing because and I joined groups. Uh, not writing, mostly publishing groups, entrepreneur groups, digital marketing groups. I sat in many webinars with people like Seth Godin who'd gone ahead and, you know, who were talking about the new world of publishing. And like, keep in mind, I wasn't looking for anything. I just wanted to write a book. For me, success was get a book done. That was, and then long story short, the, I went the digital, published it on Christmas. I saw just before Christmas that year and I thought, okay. And then people started picking it up. And before I knew it, I, it just, it just, it, it was quite, it was very, it was a spiky at the beginning. Then it went quiet around January. And then something interesting happened. Kobo, their systems were not working. And I remember calling into Kobo and saying, listen, I, you know, my book's not appearing on your website. What, what's happening? And they said, no, no, your book is up there because it's number one in techno, oh, no, international wow. mystery and <laughs> crime at the minute. And I said, but I can't see it. And long story short, they sorted it all out. And indeed, there it was. And I remember taking the, uh, you know, the shot showing the number one position. And I was like, so it had taken off virally in Canada. Interesting. Of all places. Why, why would that be, do you think? They love their crime and thrillers. I don't know. But there's, you know, it, it just took off. Don't. Because there is a clear sort of mm-hmm. American type. Mm-hmm bias of some of the language yes. in there although it's based in london yeah. was that was that a deliberate thing that was intentional because i was going for the international market because i wasn't sure where because yeah, i know it's offended yeah. some people <laughs> uh, there's something else i wanted to ask you yes. so we'll talk about you know sure. you know how you feel about comments and criticism yeah. as well in a minute but yeah. so the publishing you, you went through the, this route and it's got how many a hundred thousand Downloads yes. now? Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, with the series, uh, it was close to 100,000, yeah, downloads. And that's, uh, you know, downloads between those that were marketed and, you know, free downloads and also others sold, yeah. I know, so it means like out there, people, you know, whatever's happened, that they've just gone and downloaded it. So it's it, way yeah. beyond your wildest yeah. dreams, I would imagine. Well, it's way beyond my expectations completely because I wanted to just finish a story. So how do you feel now? Oh, great. Yeah. I, I mean, I love it. And then I've grown with the characters now. Yes. In, by, because now, yeah. now I saw you've also done something which I thought was very, very good and very interesting. You've now produced this. this uh, yes. Look at this. I've printed it up. Oh, with me. <laughs> the <laughs> Ultimate Decryptor Series Souvenir. So th- this Absolutely. is fantastic. It's yeah. like an aid memoir to all the characters and backstories of uh, all the different personalities and um, groups and organizations in the book and all the places uh, not just this book but the series of books and the characters I mean there's characters in here which don't appear in the first exactly book exactly but it, it's it's great because this is all part of the marketing and as you're saying before getting people to have these images in their head of the book not just not just the book itself but you can take it with you and follow the journey as well and that's picking up from the rest of the media world, you know. You think of in those the days where we used to have DVDs and then you had the DVD with the extras. And why did people buy the DVDs? Because they wanted the extras, they wanted the interviews and all of that. And it, the, your real fans will... They're the ones who are going to go for this. But it because as the series grew, there were more characters, there were more 
complex storylines and so forth. And this was a trial to see, for me, it was a test to see, to find those real fans, because the people who are going to download, these are the ones who want to know the backstory. Some some people call them raving fans. Exactly. You, know, you have a thousand, a true, thousand raving, true, true raving fans. fans. We've read the songs. And it's helped <laughs> me grow my reading list, because I have a, a reading list of just pure decryptor fans. How many on your list? 3,000. Wow. That's, and that's, that's just that's, this series. That, I mean, that's a modest. I mean, there's people who have more and there's people sure, who have less. Sure, but this, this but is that's... from nothing. This is, this is your raving fans who will buy and read and recommend anything you do. Exactly. And that'll just sort of like ripples in the, that'll just go bigger exactly. and bigger. That, and that amazing. is by either they download that, they leave me their email address, we have a chat, we have a newsletter that I talk to them on. They're the first to hear of anything. Some of them get involved in the editing process not editing but more like the oh you know what can we do with this character or naming characters or one one really amazing fan especially in the most recent book I've done he said you I asked one question where should we take these characters next and he said you need to take them to Hawaii and I'd actually forgotten about that and Somehow, psychologically, I did do that. The, this book, the fourth book, goes to Hawaii. And he wrote to me the other day, he said, did you, did you really take me seriously? I was like, I guess I did somehow subconsciously. T- <laughs> so, of course, you had to travel to Hawaii just to sample oh, somebody. that's yeah. <laughs> my dream. That's my dream. And I said, well, I'm going to rely on you to make sure that the information here is accurate for the readers. And so that was a very helpful relationship. But that's wonderful that you're now creating a genre of books, if you like, that is becoming... Inter- interactive in not just do you like it do you not like it let me have your comments but what do you want to see in the books going forward I mean that is that is real buy-in that is really engaging your readers and making them feel part of it you know as well and that's been the, that I think that's been the most rewarding of this whole thing is you know without the readers you know the authors wouldn't exist or they wouldn't be writing materials and I think the most rewarding is has been where you know just the the readers the fans, if you want to call them, that is, I get, I thrive on that. And uh, that's what keeps me going because it's so easy to stop on your first book. So how do you feel when you get some negative criticism, which we, which we all get because I, I, I've, I post stuff and I've written a silly little, a silly book for my marketing of my business and I've got some very good comments and I've got some damn lousy comments, which really upset you. Absolutely. And goes to the core. It really goes to the core and it makes you feel quite yeah. worthless for a, for a moment or two. How, how do you, it does. How do you address that? Do you know what? With the first, for every author, and if there's an author out there and, you know, struggling with this, it's always that first review that gets you, that first negative review. And you can spend days churning it around. And the first thing I do is I, you know, there's, there's this thing, you have to have tough skin. If you're going to do this, any creative work, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter if you're JK Rowling. It doesn't matter who. And I've heard this advice. If you get a negative review, go find the most successful author out there and then read all their negative Mm. reviews. That'll make you feel better. But for me personally is in the beginning, yes, it does hurt. As you say, it does. I don't dwell on it. Uh, You move on. And it's, it's easier said than done, but it's harder at the beginning. It gets easier. And I actually don't spend a lot of time reading reviews, not, you know, there's, you do need to read some of them to just get a sense of, you know, what can be improved. We all do that. But there is also such a thing as what's a real review and what is just someone. yeah. Yeah. And that happens. You've got trolls out there as well. And I guess, you know, when you first, you know, you, you just read it, roll over, 
you move on. My love is, and, and, and you know, because, you know, obviously it was my, you know, you, when you have your first book out and you're not sure how it's going to be received and, you know, all your friends and family will tell you it's great. And it's not until the real readers get it. And, but I always knew I wanted to do this. And so are you going to stop because of a bad review? Clearly you're not because you've carried on. Uh, and that's the thing. It, it made me better. Some people would stop yes, because some people can't do. take criticism, whether it's valid or, or not. Yeah, yeah, um, absolutely. Because it is tough because yeah. you're exposing oh, yourself. Because and some of it is personal. They even, some of it, they, but you have to learn what is constructive and what is not. And I think it's discerning what is a constructive and and parking it. It is not personal. And that's the other thing I, I learned. It is if they write a negative review, it is not personal. Don't confuse yourself with the book or with the art. Yes, just follow the process and enjoy. So do you now look forward to, to writing your, your new books? I mean, is it all you now see yourself as an author? It keeps me, oh gosh, it's my, I can't describe it. It just really keeps me going. It's my escapism. It is about creating a world where you can be God. Do you know? Do you know? If you want to throw someone off the cliff, you throw someone off the cliff. If you want to, in that world, you dictate. And I, and I, I like that. And I like to explore the human element. I like to explore complex characters. I like to explore the what if. So you mentioned one of the things I really do in these books is technology. I'm a huge. I work for Sony. Techno, you know, Sony for a long time. I also worked at Cisco Systems and all about artificial intelligence and all new developments and R&D had a chance to go to Tokyo and my and visit some of the research and technology museums so I spend a lot of time with technology and I actually so I explore that a lot and yeah so I guess where I'm going with that is I like to bring that also in the books I like to explore it I like to research that so a lot of my research is the biggest part of research is history and technology that goes into these books. And every technology that I explore might appear fantastical, but it is not. It is actually things we will be seeing or might be seeing. In well, that's, that's positively scary in many respects, but... Uh... Well... Watch this space. Watch this yeah, space. Yeah, you've got to read your books to keep up to date with well, the latest... Well, you do know there's uh... robots that write books now. There what, you cre go. Creatively? Or... Creatively. The, the, the uh, technology exists. Is it accurate? No, but look at phones when they started, mobile phones. Yeah, predictive they text. And exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you very much, Rose. This has been fascinating. Clearly, your love of London, you know, your world travels and coming back to your base in London. And your husband, who was also on the podcast recently, <laughs> and his fascination with London, and uh, that's Jason, who does the mudlarking on the Thames, which is also, I mean, you have a, you must have very interesting conversations at home, <laughs> that's all I can say. It, it's been great talking to you and getting your background and what you do. You didn't even mention that you you backing singer for Shakira, I think, yes. in, in, in Berlin. I mean, it doesn't get much more sort of uh, <laughs> fantastic than that. So a woman of many talents. But before you go, um, just a couple of questions I like to, like to ask. You're in publishing, you write books, you're an author, you love books. What one to three books of any genre would you recommend or gift most to? Oh, gosh, gift and, well, it depends. <laughs> yeah, just any, any book. What's, what's, I, maybe I can flip the question. One of my favourite books, and of course there's so many good books out there, but is The Count of Monte Cristo, especially the one written in French. And I think it's because where, because I write fiction, that book for me – and I would recommend it and I would gift it and I would gift a gift edition or an 
old edition is it explores every a lot of human emotion and obviously it's about a story about revenge but it explores all the human elements and relationships that can exist and i love that and it's got some of the most complex story <laughs> i guess plot lines but with such resolution and i can go back and go back to that book many okay. times it's not a book i've i've read so i, oh, can't, okay. I can't claim to be and that's author is is alexandre dumas <laughs> yes and he uh it was written originally in french and so that is a book i love and uh, i go back to especially when uh, i mean it's been adapted over and over translated here and there but i do love that story it's got the historical element and so much more fantastic that'll have to go on my amazon wish list to, <laughs> with the hundreds of others that i've got as well we had to have some bookshelves built at home for the the, the hundred or so books i've bought from amazon and haven't yet got round to reading so so also as you love London so much and you travel around London, I think you've probably alluded to it already, but what is your favourite place to go to in London when you want to just be in London and immerse yourself, whether it's a public place or a secret place you like to go to? Well, it is a public place, but it is the British Library. And I guess that is could be a cliche coming from an author, but I wasn't an author before it was one of my favourite places, but I if you've been to London, if you have a chance to visit London, it is A, free to go and see all that it offers. And it is got an amazing architectural display. First of all, the architecture is fantastic. But even inside, there's the this King's, I think it's called the King's Library. It's like an amazing shelving and casing that has its own story. And it's a great place to meet people. It's, you can go there to be alone and you can go there to be with people and i absolutely love it sounds fantastic and finally how do people find you how do they get in touch how do they contact you or get any of your books sure um so i am um, the easiest place to find me is rosesandy.com and i'm on twitter and i'm on facebook uh, yes. So if you go all Rose at Rose Sandy, started this early. <laughs> and on Amazon as well, of course. And on Amazon, and on as, Amazon. as well. Fantastic. Yes. Well, Rose, it's been an absolute pleasure and a delight to speak with you today. And thank you very much for being on the podcast. Oh, thank you for having and me. And to your future success in all your books and all your other endeavors. Thank you very much. Really appreciate it.